Hey everyone, Cody over here, and I am talking about coffee on the ropes. And today I've got Nigel McGinnis, and we are here talking with coffee, tea, and whatever's in our mugs about things that are happening today during our current climate and how we are all connected through our passion in some way or form in wrestling. Nigel, how are you? I know a lot of people haven't seen you lately. I'm doing, doing? all right, yeah. I'm over here in Los Angeles enjoying a good old British cuppa. Okay. My green well, mug. I, I do love your cup of teas. Tell people what is a British cup of tea. It's all about the tea bag, really. I've got Yorkshire <laughs> tea in there right now. PG chips is another good option. Um, it's the tea bag. It's your, some people put the milk in first. I always go sugar, tea bag, water. See, two minutes. If there's too much water in there, get rid of the water with the tea bag. If there's not enough, squeeze the tea bag. Then you add the milk. <laughs> it's a science. There's, yeah, there's a science to it, I've discovered. Um, I'm still trying to learn how to perfect my science, but I feel like every tea is different. There's no tea that is the same or identical as the one before. It's always a new one. Um, yeah, anyway, yeah. Right? always a journey. Yeah, I mean, even the milk, the, the little hair, the little bit of sugar changes everything. So for people who don't know you, but most people probably do know you, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into wrestling. McGinnis, come on. <laughs> who is Nigel McGinnis? Who is Nigel McGinnis? Well, that depends on how you meet him. But uh, in regards to the wrestling world, I used to work for a company called Ring of Honor, where I was a world champion there. Did, uh, some wrestling in Japan for Pro Wrestling Noah. Over in England a fair bit as well. Germany. Uh, Travelled a whole lot. This was in the mid-2000s. Very different wrestling world than the one that we have today. And then in 2000, I want to say 17, early 2017, I started working for World Wrestling Entertainment as an announcer. And uh, I've been there ever since. So that's yeah. my Reader's Digest condensed version. And again, what I love about wrestling is um, the passion that links us all together in some way, right? Because we met maybe five, six years ago because you had a documentary about your journey in wrestling. Mm. Um, tell us a little about your journey, your journey through wrestling. Yeah, it was strange. I grew up in England and uh, was a wrestling fan from the first time I saw it. My best mate, Lying Dave, procured a video of, I want to say, SummerSlam 90. And me and all my buddies sat around and watched it. The only one of us who had a VCR at the time, which tells you how long ago that was. And they kind of enjoyed it, but never really got hooked to it. But to me, I was, I was sold from then on. And I convinced my parents to get Sky TV within six months, I think. Um, Sky TV is like satellite TV. It was the only yeah. way you could watch it back then. Um, and then we just became a huge fan, sort of 13, 14 years of age. Bought all the merchandise, still own some of it. Went to SummerSlam 92 wearing Ultimate Warrior um, face paint. <laughs> Became a huge fan, you know, and it was in that sort of period of my life where I was trying to decide, well, most people try and decide, what am I going to do when I grow up? Aww. And it just suddenly occurred to me that, that wrestling could be that thing because I always felt different. I never really felt like I fit in. Um, Maybe a lot of people feel that way. But I felt as though 
I had somewhat of an athletic background, but I was never going to be good enough to play football or any sport professionally. And I obviously thought about acting, but I knew how difficult that was as well. And then I kind of felt that that wrestling, sports entertainment, call it what you will, is kind of a a blend of those two things. They always said that if you get a reaction from people, that's usually a good sign you'd be a good wrestler. And so um, the next stage of it, I think, was... Well, there were a couple of things that really inspired me. I remember um, Robbie Brookside, who's now uh, one of the coaches at the Performance Center there in Florida. He was always a huge inspiration to me. He made a video uh, on BBC um, about the wrestling industry in England. Had to be about 93, something like that. It was the first time I'd ever really seen anything inside the business, certainly in England. You know, the, the, the English wrestling had come off TV. God, I'm going to get crucified for this. I, I think it was 88, something like that anyway. So it had been a few years without TV. They were still running some of the regular shows. And just to see someone who didn't look like a bodybuilder, because that, I think, a lot of times, if you're a fan, certainly back then, and you saw the Ultimate Warrior, and you saw Hulk Hogan, and these guys are all 6'4", and, and, and jacked, and 250 pounds, or, and you go, I could never be that. But then when yeah. you looked at the British game, and you saw guys who were still in good shape, but Robbie Brookside was probably, you know, 200 pounds, 210 pounds at the time. Spoke very intelligently, was well-versed on politics, music, all these different things. And I thought, oh, okay, well, if, if he can do it, perhaps there is a chance that I can do it as well. And then Roddy Piper uh-huh. was on, oh, I want to say WWE or WWF Superstars. It was like the hour-long show that they had back then. Uh-huh. And I don't remember, it was a promo, whether it was a promo for a match, it didn't seem to be. But it was a promo akin to Martin Luther King's dad's dream speech. Okay. And he sort of looked at the camera and he said, you know, you've got to dare to dream because if you don't have a dream, you can't achieve a dream. And, and he went through this and he just delivered it with such passion. And he said, if you're sitting at home now, I can see you and I know it's your dream. Don't give up. And I really honestly felt, I remember sitting there in that lounge in my parents' house in England and feeling that he was really talking to me. It was uh-huh. just a, a moment, an epiphany that really resonated with me. So those two sort of things inspired me. I graduated high school and uh, elected to take a year off to travel around the world to try to decide what I wanted to do. And when I was in Australia, in Adelaide, I sat down in McDonald's and I took a McDonald's napkin and I wrote down all my life's ambitions. Uh And number one was WWF, become a superstar and meet them. (laughs) Achieved. Yeah. But that was there. So um, I uh, wrote off to a lot of people in my generation probably did the same thing. In the back of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, there was a little article, a little advert commercial, if you will, for how to be a pro wrestler. It was written by Percy Pringle and um, someone else as well. I forget who it was. And it, it didn't really say that much about the inner workings of the industry. What it really did was give you a list of all the schools in America at the time. Yeah. 
Now there's probably three or four independent schools for every major city. Back then there was probably, I think, about 12 in the whole country. Well, that's very tiny. A lot of them, Not a lot at all. Yeah, yeah, a lot of them were kind of defunct. Um, I remember the, the Monster Factory, which is still up and running. Uh, and then there was one for Luthez, um, who was obviously one of the greatest world champions of all time. And so I recognized his name from reading about wrestling. Wrote off to that. And what had actually happened was he'd closed the school down and forwarded everybody that wrote to the school to Les Thatcher at Heartland Wrestling Association in Cincinnati. So he got the letter and wrote me back personally, handwritten letter uh, with his number. I called him up, went down and visited the next week and, uh, and was sold. And yeah. after I graduated early, like three years later, I um, went to Ohio and started training. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've been through... I, th I think it takes a certain character to become a wrestler and to continue wrestling. Um, a lot of people give up real quick. It's not easy. It's hard. And from a viewer perspective versus being in ring, it's quite different. So yeah, I mean, you've been in the ring and you've taken bumps, right? You understand how it feels and it, 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 it hurts a lot. It's hard. Um, yeah, you're really, you're really hurting your body each time. Each time, I, now I believe each time a performer goes into the ring, they are risking their bodies and their lives for the, for the art. It's not. Yeah. To a certain extent. I mean, you, you step out the door, you're risking your life. You cross the road, you're risking sure. your life. But certainly as a wrestler, there, there's a greater risk. Certainly if you look at the quality of, of the wrestling that people are putting out there now, the, I mean, it's incredible. You, you watch wrestling back in the seventies, even the eighties and the style was so much, I, I don't want to say slower because that does it a disservice. I mean, you can watch, Guys like uh, Dory Funk mm -hmm. or Steamboat or Flair, and they were moving. They were moving fast, but it is very different than the sort of bump-heavy style that you see nowadays. Which um, you know, it's it's incredible that people can do it. I mean, I retired. What was that? 2011, mm -hmm. I think so. Right before I made the documentary. Okay. And. Uh, I, I don't know if I had to continue wrestling. I don't know if I'd, I'd still be able to be wrestling nowadays. It's, it's interesting because you look at a lot of my peers, AJ Styles, Daniel Ryan, Samoa Joe, guys like that, and they're still going and they're doing great, you know? So you just don't know. I would have had to change my style. But that's amazing as well. I think, look, take a little archery back. Yeah an injury um arguably came an even better is there anyone thought. today that has a, a style that's similar to what how you used to wrestle um, wrestler yeah i mean there were guys you know timothy thatcher's just started out down there in nxt um drew gulak a lot of the more sort of technical base but i mean i i kind of patterned my style more on the sort of stuff you saw in uh, Japan wow. in the late 90s, because that was kind of, it's an interesting sort of journey into being educated about wrestling or sports entertainment, because certainly in the 90s, there was no real exposés. You couldn't see inside the business, you know. I mean, yeah, right. now you just got to look on YouTube and you can find everything you need to know about the industry behind the scenes, pretty much. 
Not to say it's all true, but you know, a lot of misleading stuff. But ultimately, back then you couldn't. There was none of that information. So I remember just getting in the ring for the first time and, and, and taking a hip toss or giving a backdrop or something like that. And going, oh, wow. It was a real sense of magic of, of feeling what this really felt like. And then mm. once you started to learn the psychology of telling a story during a match, you know, from the simple idea of having a yeah, good guy right. and a bad guy. And the good guy does well until the bad guy cheats. But then ultimately the good guy comes back at the end. That simplistic notion. And then you take that and you can change it. You can tell so many different stories with nuances uh-huh. and subtleties. And that's, that's the real art, the real art yeah. form of, of seeing, you know. And um, it, it's an incredible thing that I, I fell in love with and only um, in the world of wrestling today. Um, some, well, in a little bit of wrestling that I learned, obviously I was all technical because all I did was take front bumps back bumps and rolls and nothing crazy obviously I'm like way way beginner stages very light chain wrestling but um, I never really got to the point of practicing promos so what do you think is more important though having a good mic piece or being a good being good on the mic or having good wrestling skills or do you think they go hand in hand and, and why what kind of tip well, you I mean, as human beings we respond best to stories I think uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, we've evolved from aeons of sitting around campfires telling stories. And if you think of any great TV shows, it's the characters that are really what, what draw you into it, you know. Now, in sports entertainment, of course, you have to be able to back that up to a certain extent. That doesn't mean you have to be the greatest worker in the history of the business at all, you know. If you look at it as a business, and Gorilla Monsoon is... is famous for saying if you're in the business for any other reason than making money you're a fool i'm not sure if i agree with that 100 percent, but i would say that as a business it's about making money you know and the business has changed certainly over the last 15 20 years in terms of how that money is made either from live events then to pay-per-views merchandise tv rights commercials there's a lot of different ways of making money but Mm -hmm. ultimately the characters have to draw you in and to, to get that character over, yeah, you kind of need to be pretty good on the mic. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be able to do a great promo per se. You can think right. of great characters who can say nothing whatsoever or very little whatsoever. Like Brock Lesnar? <laughs> yeah, Lesnar is certainly someone that comes to mind, obviously, with, with Heyman as his mouthpiece, and his, that, that um, helps a great deal. But uh, there are other guys, I mean, The Undertaker, they incredible promos, but didn't have to use a lot of words. Very and true. It's his, well, presence, it's his presence that has connected. Mm-hmm. You broke up. Keep going. Sorry, someone just called in. So, um, yeah, no, so I was just saying, yeah, I think ultimately I wouldn't say you have to have a great promo. And say you have to have a great character. You have to be able to connect. You know, I mean, there there are so many guys. What's that? It's a package, then you would say. Just you got to put it all. Yes and no, because I can think I can tell you a lot of guys that weren't the best workers that drew a lot of money, that engaged you, that 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 really brought you into it. Um, 
were there a lot of great guy, guys who were great workers who worked great promo guys who drew a lot of money? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Probably, probably not. I mean, certainly not in the modern era. I mean, if you think of Fez, for example, Lou Fez, as I mentioned before, drew a lot of money as a world champion. Um, promos weren't as big a part of the game back then. It was a very different world, a very different era. Um, but he was able to say enough to, to connect, I guess. Well, I mean, it's not just promo related, but I think obviously Hulk Hogan goes down as one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. But people, many people would argue that his wrestling wasn't nearly as good as his gimmick or his character, right? So how would well, you say that? Because I kind of technically as a technical wrestler and, and uh-huh. that's what you should call it when people say chain wrestling i don't really and i know i know william regal agrees with me on this one actually he probably <laughs> told me about it like chain wrestling just implies that one link goes to another link goes to another link goes to another link uh-huh. where uh-huh. really this is what i like to call it and he likes to call it technical wrestling hmm. the technical aspect of it now hulk hogan you can watch some of his stuff from japan um, in the early 80s with Antonio Inoki and other guys, he could do some pretty good stuff and he could move pretty well. But what he realized, what he found when he came you know, back to America and started working for WWF as it was at the time, was that the crowd didn't necessarily react to that in the same way. He didn't need to do it. Mm. And that was part of his evolution and learning that. So he certainly didn't use all the tools in his um, toolbox, so to speak. And arguably didn't need to, you know. I mean, you take a look at Steve Austin. Because it's funny, I was watching um, that Broken Skull Ranch TV show that he has on the network. Mm-hmm. And he was interviewing um, Ric Flair. And mm-hmm. they were talking about how Steve Austin had to change his style as well. Not because he worked in a different country, but because he hurt his neck from that pile driver. So he had to change his style from far more of a technical style to more of a brawling style. And he feels as though, to a certain extent, that really helped him sure. in terms of, you know, that new character that he was getting over. Well, here's the thing. I've been to three Wrestle Kingdoms, right? So I've, I've been in really major, uh, in New Japan's, you know, their version of WrestleMania. And I recognize or notice that being a spectator in Japan is a lot different than being a spectator in America, right? So maybe hmm. the cultures have an influence on how you wrestle what brings your your what brings what component of wrestling is important to you in the in the ring depending on what country would you agree like it just yes, really 100% I mean as we're talking about characters even the characters that appeal to certain cultures are going to be different as well the things that would because in Japan everyone's more quiet right they're not right. very loud and rowdy it's uh, it, I think who was it that I was talking to I was interviewing a wrestler and he, he said it felt, it felt like uh, you, were, you were being um, a tribute when going into the ring in Japan because y- you're being honored. So they're quiet and they're spectating and it's very different. So who <laughs> yeah, it was, really, it was great. Yeah, I don't know who it was either, but maybe that's because they went over. I don't know. <laughs> no, he's, he's pretty popular. If I remember him, I'll tell you. Um, yeah, it's okay. No, I'm just joking. Um, they are very more respectful. They see it more as a sport than as entertainment. At least they certainly did when I was working there and certainly in the late 90s. Um, they got the respect, as much respect as the regular sports teams uh, and superstars out there. Um, yeah. 
But you watch some of the guys, like, I mean, you watch Bruiser Brody when he used to come to the ring in Japan, and that was, oh, that was something else, yeah. Oh, Bruiser Brody, yeah. Yep, yep. Mm. But it's funny because um, I remember I, I wrestled in France one time, and I remember it was, it, was a, it was a small independent show somewhere around Paris, in my recollection. And I remember the crowd being noticeably different in what they responded to. Oh, mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. I think, to your point, the society um, that you're working in front of has, has a big factor of that. And I'm sure, you know, if, if I ever wrestled in China or somewhere like that, it'll be very different as well. Right, right. Well, maybe, maybe one day we'll see you in the ring. Who knows? <laughs> for, your, for a comeback. But I would know because suddenly I'd be like, why are you getting so buff? <laughs> anyway, so other than wrestling, obviously you don't do just wrestling. You don't just talk wrestling. You're, you've done a lot of things. You also do a lot of magic. How did you get into mm. magic? Um, the first <laughs> time I've heard of magic, there was a guy at my school when I was like 17 years old. And he showed me three tricks with a deck of cards. And I was bowled over, absolutely bowled over. I paid him five pounds to show me how to do these tricks. <laughs> they were very simple ones, very easy tricks, as it turned out. And so it wasn't until, I want to say, I was going to Japan. Yeah, I was wrestling in Japan. And a lot of times in Japan, they'd have sponsors would be fans who would take you out after the shows they take you out to eat to drink or whatever and you'd sit there sometimes for two or three hours cross-legged at these these sort of uh, dinners and lots of different food would be passed around some of it was amazing and delicious some of it wasn't really to my palate um and so i also didn't speak the language and i felt a little awkward so what i tried to do was i'd take a deck of cards and just just do a couple of basic tricks and it started really sort of getting a reaction from some of the fans over there. And actually the guy that ran the company was a big magic fan as well. So we connected in that oh, way. Yeah. Okay. Um, but then ultimately, like I think most things in my life, if not everything in my life, it all ultimately comes back to trying to impress girls. Uh-huh. And so when I really got into it, I think it was when I got divorced and I was like, okay, what can I do to sort of stand out and impress girls? And uh, magic was uh, my first attempt. <clears throat> Did it work? Well, I will quote Nick Aldis, who says, Nigel gets out a pack of cards and the girls disappear. Ta-da! What? That's not true. Magic's fun. Magic's fun for everyone. Yeah, I'm sure it definitely attracts the kids, though. <laughs> right? Yeah, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because magic works um, on different levels for different people. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. For example, if you're four years old, you can't really see a lot of the more complex magic tricks because they don't really get it. They don't really understand the laws of science and stuff like that. They just think that a, a black card turns into a, into a red card. And they go, oh, hmm. You know, whereas you can fool them with, with much, you know, easy, easier stuff like just that, you know, right. like taking your thumb off, which to an adult is like, okay, but to a kid they're like, ah, you know. Uh-huh. Do it again. Um, it's fascinating, actually, because a lot of people, um, Max Maven, uh, who's a friend of mine, who is uh, one of the greatest mentalists ever. Uh, he's a member of the Magic Castle. <clears throat> he's always been a big wrestling fan as well. He connected with William Regal over their love of wrestling and their love of magic and, and that old uh, 80s British entertainment genre. 
Anyway, Max is always talking about a lot of the similarities between magic and wrestling. For example, big covers the small. In magic, oftentimes you're doing something really big to cover something that's really small. And it's the same idea in wrestling. You throw a punch or a kick uh-huh. or something else like that. It's, there are a lot of the similarities between the two entertainment forms. Okay. So right now we're in this coronavirus situation. What, what you've been up to? Um, and how are you feeling? Then the hair grow out, as you can see. Look at that. It actually, looks, it actually looks a little less puffy right now, believe it or not. <laughs> My hair hasn't been this long since I was uh, a Britpop fan in the 90s and I was trying to take after Britt Anderson. Um, I, so, I, think, I think it's cute. I actually think because a lot of guys' hair is growing out, so it, it looks like little kids again, little boys, right? Yeah, well, you know, it covers up some of my receding hairline, so that's good, I guess. Um, yeah, we've got another, what do we say now, another two months of it here in L.A.? No. I mean, I was just talking to a friend about this. It's just starting to drive me crazy. I need to stop looking at the news again because there's mm. new headlines new. Nothing new. It's always three months, two months, slow build, slow opening. What, what is new? How are they churning new news stories when it's the same thing it just makes no sense to me i mean well, I-, I just think ultimately you know people aren't going to know anything definitive about this for another year and a half two years you know until you've got all the numbers in the statistics and by then it'll be you know the the horse will be out of the barn well and truly you know so yeah. we've just got to try to um adapt as we're going along it's a it's a it's a crazy time it's a scary time um like the tale of two cities, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. You know, in some ways, you now we watched that um, Some Good News with John Krasinski, right? right. And you see all the wonderful things that human beings are capable of. And you don't have to look very far to see some of the terrible things that people are capable of as well. And, and unfortunately, we might see a lot more of both of those things moving forward. So you just got to do the best that you can do with your own little corner of the universe, right? Right. I mean, I, when this first started, the first couple of weeks, I thought positive, you know, how many times in our lifetime are we going to be forced to sit back, chill a little bit, catch up on things? Felt nice. But the past couple of weeks, is, is, I'm starting to go a little stir crazy. But mm. silver lining is now I'm starting to readjust. Like, this is a new normal. This is what it's going to look like. But what about you? What, what, what are you feeling right now? A lot of emotions, really. I've got a very complicated life, um, <laughs> partially created by myself, you know. <laughs> so that's a lot of sort of stuff to deal with. Um, so I'm just doing my best with it, you know. I'm trying to trying to be present. I mean, a lot of the same things that are good for you outside of a pandemic are just as good for you inside the pandemic. Being present, appreciating the positives in your life, taking time for yourself to meditate, you know, do a bit of yoga, a bit of exercise. I've been riding my bike all over the place as well. well that's, so that's actually good. something I wanted to touch base on because you're you're in your 40s. You're hitting your mid-40s, but you're hey. very healthy. Hey, you're very healthy. So I want to have you tell the viewers what you do to stay fit. Mid-40s? Good Lord. Why are you so shocked? Is that fact or fiction? <laughs> oh. <laughs> I feel like old yellow. No. 40. Let's go with 40. Okay, you're, you're 40. 40. 
Yeah, well, what do you do to stay in shape or keep up? Because I think you look, you're pretty fit. I mean, I know you're pretty fit, but, you know. <laughs> Still got it. Still got it. Um, <laughs> yeah, just keep an active. Like I said, I ride my bike every day, uh, sometimes just for about half an hour, sometimes for a couple of hours. just depends mm -hmm. what I've got to do, where I've got to go, things and stuff like that. Bit of yoga at home, that's super important. Uh, I think if I'd done yoga while I was wrestling, I would have been in much better shape. Probably wouldn't have had the injuries that I did have. That's what I hear yeah, from yeah. all wrestlers. Well, all the wrestlers yeah. I've talked to about that stuff, yeah. That yeah. Yoga is very helpful. Yeah. And um, what else do I do? Run around a little bit, you know. I did some, uh, what did we do? Shuttle, shuttle runs. Oh, yeah, you, you know, just keeping up with my daughter as well. I have to bend over and pick her up every time she wants. So that's a bit of a hat, you know. And then your supplements. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, I try to eat well as well. You know, I do uh, intermittent fasting. So I eat, I try to get finished eating by 8 o'clock and then go to bed by noon uh, like midnight excuse me wow that's a long time yeah, hell of a night um and then <laughs> I usually get up about 7 7 30 and i don't eat breakfast until somewhere between 10 30 and 11 30 depending on what's going on you know right. so that seems to help i'm on a you know just just some good basic supplements vitamin d take protein and, you know, and a few sort of um, nootropics for, for brain health as well yeah, yeah. so that's good that's um, I'm sure you, you, we all can use neurotropics. <laughs> yeah, and, and plenty of cups of tea as well. Plenty of cups of tea. Um, tell our listeners something that they probably wouldn't know about you, something random. Like I can tell them, for example, you love eggs and you make awesome omelets. Something <laughs> right. <laughs> something they wouldn't know about me. Um, I'm giving this away because I wanted to use this in my autobiography, but as soon as I'll never write it. Um, <laughs> I think you kind of do I every was, day. <laughs> when I was, I want to say 19, uh, at university. Mm. My first year. If this is a girl's story, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> oh, it's a girl's story. All right, go ahead. <laughs> um, I went to university and I was very shy around girls, especially girls I thought were very attractive. Um, just couldn't talk to them. And I always believed that if they just got to know me, because I was a nice guy, you know, I knew I was a nice guy. I just wanted to find one girl and fall in love and get married and yada, yada, yada. And I wanted that kind of, I knew I'd have to go to America and be a wrestler and whatever else, but you know, I was a romantic at heart anyway. So I came up with this idea of how to introduce myself to girls. In England, in the 80s, there were these commercials on TV for Cadbury's Milk Train. And it would be this guy who was dressed up in black commando gear, like James Bond. And you'd see him swim through shark-infested waters and climb up the side of mountains and jump through the window of this big castle and he'd sneak into this room and there'd be this beautiful girl asleep in bed and he'd leave a box of Cadbury's milk trays next to the bed and he'd be out the window. That's a little creepy, but okay. And she'd just wake up and see <laughs> the chocolates and then the, 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 um, the tagline would be, all because the lady loves milk trays. 
that doesn't sound right at all. So, oh, I decided what I was going to do was I would um, buy oh, this no. black commando gear, <laughs> get oh, these no. chocolates, and I would, when I see a beautiful girl around the university, I would run back, get changed in my chemistry department, come back out, give them the chocolates, disappear again, and then do that for as many like beautiful girls as I could. What the and hell? then eventually I'd build up a legend about who I was, who this person was. And then finally, the one girl that I wanted to date, I'd give her the chocolates, I'd pull the mask off, she'd go, oh my God, it's you. And That's, you're so famous. Crazy. <laughs> That's so crazy. Did not work very well. I can't imagine it working. No, no. Oh, okay. Some girls, some girls liked it. Some girls, you know, you could see they were happy about it, and they probably, you know, spent the rest of their time thinking, "Oh, I wonder who that guy was." Or they might have some missed. girls, not so much. There was one girl who looked at me like I was Jaws, like she was in the boat in Jaws. <laughs> that being said, um, yeah. Do you have anything else to uh, say? Anything else to say? About anything in general? Anything in general, yeah. We're going to close out, so. Oh. No, I just, you know, it's, it's funny. Um, when you talk about your history and your life and stuff like that, and when you talk about stuff in a public forum like this, yeah, you're always trying to put it the best foot forward. Always, yeah. You, if you watch my documentary that I created myself, you might feel otherwise because that was pretty, pretty depressing. Um, but I yeah, wanted to put one. that side forward. I wanted to show this is what you can really go through. And I think a lot of people identify with that, uh, suffering that sort of depression, that those recurring feelings of regret. But through talking to you on here and, and through trying to put the best foot forward, I think it's that notion of neuroplasticity is that if you can just talk positively, Talk to yourself the way that you talk to the world. Perhaps uh, you'll feel better at the end of it. So you feel better after this this conversation. I sure do. What about you? I'm happy that you know during this time of crisis we have each other and the world has each other. And I'm glad that this podcast made you feel better and remember all the good things that you have going for you. It's all about perspective. So thank you for joining us and. Uh, We'll talk to everyone. Is there, by the way, is there a way for anyone to reach you on Twitter or anything? What's your handle? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at McGinnis Nigel, and uh, that's it, really. Do people still have websites? I, I didn't I shut mine down a lifetime ago. Don't look at Facebook. I'm trying to avoid social media as much as possible. But yeah, you know, um, WWE Network. You can find me all over that, of course. And um, yeah, there you go. All right. Well, thanks for joining me. <laughs> and thanks, guys, for tuning in. And we'll catch you guys next time with another wrestling passionate human being. See you later. Bye.